Hello everyone and welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm your host, Ads Lyson. My guest today is Mark Ormrod. Mark is a former Royal Marine Commando, Invectus Game Athlete, motivational speaker, author of Man Down, a father, a husband, as well as a million other different things. After triggering an improvised explosive device during a routine foot patrol in Afghanistan in 2007, he suffered serious injuries resulting in a triple amputation. He was the UK's first triple amputee to survive the Afghanistan conflict. Mark is a truly inspirational human being. His determination and motivation for success is bar none and what separates him from the rest of us. So please sit back, lock in and enjoy a grumpy surface conversation with Mark Ormrod. Mark Armrod, welcome to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. How are you doing, brother? I am good, mate. How are you? Yeah, yeah, good, good. I'm glad to get hold of you eventually. Yeah, no, sorry, I've been, been turbo busy, you know, spinning plates and bouncing from one project to the other, but um, we got here eventually. We got yeah. here eventually. So, Mark, tell me about your early life and why you joined the Royal Marines. All right, so I'll, I'll jump back and I'll give you the quick version of this because I'll go on all day else. Yes. But, um, Effectively, when I was probably about 15 and a half, um, I was born and bred here in Plymouth, just about to finish up my compulsory education at Stoke Daniel Community College. And I was walking through the hall one day, uh, around about lunchtime, and I, I don't know why, but I had like this epiphany. And I thought to myself, you know, I've got my GCSEs on the horizon, you know, this is my last year of school. And this was the first time that I really thought about it. But I remember thinking, when these exams are over, I need to make a decision. Do I go on to further education, you know, try and get myself to university and then get a career after that? Or do I jump into the big bad world and just start now as a, you know, I'd, by the time I'd finished, I'd have been 16 years old um, and try and build a career as early as I possibly could. So I went home and had a little bit of a think about it. And my, my gut just told me, you know, that further education wasn't for me. You know, I wasn't bad at school. I, I eventually got uh, 10 GCSEs, 9 A to Cs, and uh, 1D. So I did all right. I could have easily gone on to college. Better than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I just, I just, my gut was just like, you know what? You got to go out there and you've got to experience the world and start earning an income. And, and I even, you know, back from... 15 and a half knew that I wanted a career as opposed to a job. I wanted something where I could start at the bottom, build my way up, work my way to the top and do something that will force me to grow as an individual, something that I knew was going to be fulfilling. So I decided that's what I was going to do, you know, do my exams, finish school, start a career. Then I had the issue of what was I going to do? You know, what kind of career did I want? And I had no idea. So again, I you know I sat down, and I thought about it. I started speaking to a couple of friends who were older than me who had already left school. A couple had been in the army. Some were going down the public services route, wanting to go into the police, the prison service, fire brigade, that kind of stuff. So I contemplated all of those careers, and then eventually decided I wanted a career in the military. Now the the weird thing, for me looking back on it, was I was born and bred here in Plymouth, right? So Royal Marines have a huge presence here in Plymouth. But I didn't know who the Royal Marines were when I was growing up. I just thought if you join the, 
the military and you want to be a soldier, you join the army. So my friend who was already in the army, he was two years older than me, um, or grew up with where I live. He was based out in Germany in the, the second tank regiment, took me down to the career center. We spoke to the recruiter there. He gave me all the paperwork because of my age, because um, I was under 16, I had to take it home, get it signed by my parents. And then my dad said to me, do you know you had an uncle who was in the Royal Marines? He started at the bottom, did his 22 years and he left as a captain. I'm like, I had no idea. I knew who he was talking about. I just didn't know that that was his background. He only lived at the road uh, in Buckfast Lee. So here, between here and Exmouth. So we jumped in the car one weekend. We went up to speak to him. And I remember walking in. He had like a like a farmhouse. Yeah, he had horses and a big Alsatian dog. And, you know, you open up the front door to this, this barn cottage that he lived in. And right in front of you was this giant citation and this officer's sword with a green lid on the end. And I sat down with him and I remember being really intimidated for some reason, I, I don't know why. And he started talking to me about his career. He told me about the difference between the Corps and the Army, you know, the kind of things that I could expect to do and be and experience in the Royal Marines. So I went back to the career center, spoke to the bootneck recruiting sergeant down there. And he put this, this is going to make me sound old, but he put this VHS cassette in, the, the recruiting thing. And I just watched it and I'm like, damn, that's what I want to do. You know, I had lads in Norway, in the jungle, in the desert, jumping out of uh, helos, fast roping, parachuting, yomping on the raiding craft, doing all that stuff. And I was like, this is what I want to do. This is going to give me that growth that I'm looking for, where I can become a bigger, better person and really have a, a career that's fulfilling. So I filled out the paperwork, went back to school, finished my exams, Got an invite to do the the old uh, PRMC, went and smashed that, passed that first time, came back, uh, started going through the training program that was written for me, you know, just gradually increasing my, my running, upper body fizz, progressing into boots, that kind of stuff, just waiting for my letter to say, come and join us at, at CTC and, and start your training. And that eventually came, uh, probably... It was the end of 2000, right about Christmas 2000. And they invited me down February 2001 to start with 804 Troop. So that's how that happened. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I joined a year, a year earlier than you did. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I joined in May 2000. No, May 15th, 2000, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so just, just under a year before, yeah. Yeah, 787 Troop was mine. 804. <laughs> Oh, well, I sound so old. We sound so old now when you look back at that. But yeah, I remember, you know, going through training. Oh, I don't need to tell you, mate. It was honking, especially as a 17-year-old. Even though I was only 45 minutes up the road in Exmouth, I felt like I was on the other side of the planet. And as a 17-year-old, I was the second youngest in my troop, surrounded by 64 blokes. that They come from South Africa, Zimbabwe, all over the UK, we had an Australian, uh, Kiwi, you know, all over the world, all older than me. Everyone seemed to know what they were doing, except for me. I remember looking around at everyone, like, in the first couple of days, ironing their rig and foundation, thinking, what the hell am I doing? I have no clue. You know, I've been told, but I'm so intimidated and, and scared, and I've never been a away from home, really. And it was just a massive, steep learning curve. Um that I eventually, as the, the week slowly progressed, broke down into a, 
week by week, day by day basis to just try and get through it one day at a time. Because as you know, it is pretty intense, um, fast paced, steep learning curve. Just holistically, it's just a lot as a young person who's just come straight out of school to, to take in and to run with. Yeah, I had, um, I had a, uh, a guy when I was in training who was probably late 20s, early 30s maybe. And uh, he was a sergeant in the French Foreign Legion. <laughs> right. And uh, I don't know whether I've told this story before, but I went round to his... I was 18 mm-hmm. when I went through training. And I um, I went round to his flat in Exeter. And he had a load of old books, old legionnaire books and stuff on the uh, on his shelf. And uh, when I opened them up, he was showing me all the pictures that he was in. Like, m- the, m- the majority of the time he was in Africa. Mm-hmm. So he had like photos of him skinning pythons, and I think there was uh, there was there was one photo of him that was quite prevalent that sticks in my head. Is he was jumping up this massive mountain with a uh, with a Milan on okay. his back because they use Milans as well, like we used to do before right. javelin. Um, and I was like, that man, this, this guy's like the epitome of a soldier. Mm-hmm. And why would you leave the French Foreign Legion as a stripey mm-hmm. to go through? All that recruit training again, and this guy had more, more um, medals than my training training team did probably <laughs> put together. You wow. know, he'd seen action all over the place. Yeah. Um, there's a few stories that I can't really repeat that he did. It, it was one of them was very similar. Have you read The Devil's Guard? I haven't. No. Okay, so I can do it, but not put the detail in when they were going through some of the villages. So it's about Germans in the Second World War in Africa. Okay. And what they used to do for the local population is they used to strap the the local villages around their vehicles and drive through enemy villages so the enemy soldiers didn't shoot at them. Right, okay. And that's what this guy used to told me a story about what he did was and I was like I, it wasn't until someone repeated the devil's guard story mm-hmm. and I was like that man like he must he was tapped anyway right and you could just tell from his eyes you know when you just got that yeah, stereotypical yeah. this guy's some sent some shit mm-hmm. and uh yeah I was always in awe of him and I got put into his section as well let me guess he was section commander he was section king's commander king's badge diamonds yeah, everything right? all, all that stuff but to be honest with you, being a young lad that really didn't know my ass from my elbow, it helped me out a lot as well because, you know, he didn't do anything for me, mm-hmm. but like he was there as like almost like a support network when you needed it, mm-hmm. which was which was super good because, well, you know, yourself during that time, you were literally terrified to do anything mm-hmm. and it was survival till you left the place, mm-hmm. you know, so... Um, yeah, he, he, was a, he was a really nice guy and I kept in touch with him um, until probably about 10 years ago. Then it, then we found each other on Facebook in inverted commas again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I, I think if I was in your situation now, going through training with, with someone like that, I would have done the same thing because I just find when you surround yourself with people like that, even though if you have no idea what it is you're doing and you're taking on all this information and it's just, it seems crazy it almost forces you to up your game because they're so good and you kind of, it's inspirational to look at them, you know, and, and think, Jesus, you know, if he can do that, then maybe I can. And you almost subconsciously or unconsciously 
force yourself to be better, you know, and, and that's that's what I like to do in different areas of my life now is to get around people that are performing at a much higher level than I am. And then it kind of gives me that kick up the ass to go, come on, Mark, shake it off and, and put more effort in, you know? I think that comes with age though, doesn't it really? Like when you're younger, you really don't want to listen to anybody else. Right. But as you get older, I think your, your, um, your, look out, your outlook on life is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start to see that actually I can take bits from that person or, right. you know, he's a positive influence on me. So I, I want him a little bit closer in my life. And you, you tend to see that, I think. I mean, I'm nearly 40 now. I'm 40 next year. And uh, definitely looking back, you know, there were certain people that even though I didn't realise they were positive, almost role models mm-hmm. that I used to take things from, yeah. which I think is, you know, a positive thing. But going back to like training, they ate, I can't say any of my training team were really role models. They were more like, leave me alone. I think I was quite lucky because mine were really, I mean, they, they were hoofing. You know, we had, we had like most troops, I think, some dipped in and dipped out and, and did bits and pieces. But, you know, some of the ones that we had from day one to, to King Squad were, were awesome. And some of them are still in now. Some of them are see kicking around now, still doing other things. Um, but it wasn't until, I don't think, years after I passed out that I realised how good they were, you know, and, and then you just got to feel grateful for that, you know, because these real highly professional guys that love what they do pouring their knowledge into you. At the time, you don't realise it because they're whipping your ass and thrashing you and doing all this kind of stuff. But from a, a soldiering level, you know, I, I they really knew what they were doing, you know. So did you pass out in 2001? Yeah, I was an original of 804 Troop, joined February 2001, passed out October 2001, which, I mean, September 11th, you know, like four or five weeks before we finished our training, I think we just come out of maybe field firing one or two. Maybe we'd finished them both. But we were in the diner at Limston um, when the planes hit the towers and we saw it, you know, queued up for a burger and saw it happening. And we're all like, guess what we're doing in a couple of weeks, lads? We're off. We're off. Which, you know, as in, I was then turned 18, is exciting as a young, dumb lad who's just about to get a green lid, you know, you think this is brilliant because this is what I joined for and I'm going to go and get to put all this 30 plus weeks training to the test. Um, so that, you know, no one, at least on face value, was was, was worried. Everyone seemed excited about this. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we passed out a couple of weeks later and then that's what happened straight into training for... Afghanistan in 2000, end of 2001 for Operation Jakana. Didn't end up going on that. Uh, ended up as a taxi to South Cerny and Bryce Norton, taking blokes from Plymouth up there and picking them up again, which was a bit of a kick in the balls, you know what I mean? Because you got to see all these blokes coming back, having deployed, you itching to get out there, and you're a taxi driver, you know? So that was a little bit demoralising, but then... Telic one road round 2003, went out there with uh, what is now 30 Commando, uh, was I can't remember, the United Kingdom Landing Force Command Support Group, I think they were called back then. Yeah. They changed their name several times, uh, HQ. Went out there on Telic one, um, came back in one piece. A little Again, a little bit disappointed because I think I'd built this, this war experience up to be effectively like, like a movie, like Rambo, you know, running around with a knife in my teeth, 
you know, dodging bullets and, and doing all this cool stuff. And I didn't fire a single round on Talek 1. Not, and and I, I got attached to a regimental aid post, me and two other bootnecks, as like security, QRF, that kind of thing. Thinking, okay, we're attached to medics here. We're going to see quite a lot of stuff. Um, I saw nothing for three and a half months. Came out of a, a hoof in town, you know, no dits really. And then settled back into unit life. Like, is that it? You know what I mean? In, in I think in the space of, must have been three years, I had joined Limpston, passed out of Limpston, got my lid, been to Iraq, came back. And I thought, well, that's pretty decent, actually. I haven't even done my minimum term of five years yet. And I've already got the lid, experienced war. I could happily put my chit in now and, and tick a box, which some people, not for any fault of their own, could do 20 plus years and, and not have squeezed that into a 20 plus year career. So which I've, they would have done their careers. So when we went through training, the majority of the guys say they're coming to the tail end of their career mm-hmm. would have only really seen. Maybe Northern Ireland. Ireland, sort of like, you know. Maybe Kosovo. Possibly the Falklands if they passed out a train like early 80s and mm. stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, but. Anything kinetic-wise, I mean, I'd say the vast majority of people around about the time that we joined hadn't had maybe walked around Ireland. That's pretty much mm. about it. Kosovo was there, but Kosovo wasn't really kinetic there, was it? It was more of a humanitarian yeah. mission more than anything. Yeah, so, yes, I felt quite fortunate in a, in a strange way that I'd squeezed all that in into that, that short period of time. Um, and I actually left. I put my chit in. Uh, my daughter was born in January 2006, uh, 2005 and I put my chit to leave January 2006 um, after having served that minimum five years. Um, but failed massively as a civvy. Massively. Um, just couldn't... I, I didn't see what a lot of people were saying when I was in the court. You know, oh, don't go in the Simi Street, it's rubbish, there's nothing out there. And I was like, listen, I'm 20 maybe 22 years old. Like I said, I've got the lid, been to, to war, anyone will hire me. Uh, that wasn't the case. Uh, did, the, did the old, what everyone was doing back then, close protection, training out in South Africa, got all my tickets for that, came back. I, I couldn't get any work doing CP stuff. Not that there was a lack of it, there was, there was loads of it. But I think because I was young and I didn't know anybody in the industry to help get my foot in the door, just... You know, no one would reply to my emails, no one would get back to me about any of this stuff. I was working as a nightclub doorman at the time to try and earn some money down at the infamous Union Street. And uh, things were just going downhill fast. Um, always in trouble, not through any fault of my own. I don't I don't think it was, they were just, at the time they were regulating the security industry with the SIA badges. So yeah. that, I think they were trying to sweep away a lot of the the thugs and, you know, wannabe gangsters from the 80s and 90s who just used to like bullying people. So the police were coming down hard on nightclub dawn specifically. And I just found myself in, in trouble a lot and, you know, really struggling to keep my head above water as a civvy. So I came running back to the warm, loving embrace of the core and went back to the career centre and told this, the uh, sergeant major now, you know, I've been outside, I think it was 11 months at that point. I said, I want to come back in. What's the score? He's like, well, you don't have to do Limpston again, which is great. You just got to do APWT, BFT, NBC down at the chamber. And there was one other thing, oh, weapons handling test. And then you're back in rig. 
So I signed up, signed on the dotted line, went to CTC. For some reason, it took a whole month for me to do those tests. I could have done them in a day, maybe two days, but they spread out over the course of a month. Uh, passed them, got back in rig, and then went to 40 Commando. I had the choice of CTC or 40 Commando. CTC, is, as you know, is non-deployable, so that wasn't really an option. I didn't really want to be stuck around there um, with all the... Uh, you know how official everything is around there. You got to do everything by the book. So I went to forty and uh, straight into optag training for Herrick Seven uh, out in Afghan. Early was it January, February, May two thousand seven? I think I joined there. Yeah. So trying to get this, uh, get back out there and see if the Afghan experience was going to be different from the Iraq experience, which it very much was. <laughs> it was hugely different. Um, yeah, because Herrick 7, I did Herrick 5 and um, I was with J, or J Commando, as people like to call it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it was super, super kinetic. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the stories that I heard coming out of 7 as well were Herrick 7 mm-hmm. was, it was a very kinetic tour as well. Yeah, it was, I mean, as you know, it was just so different. Like, just when I just sit and I kind of in my head compare notes to how things were and how we operated or how I operated and the people that I worked with operated in Iraq compared to, to Afghan was just so different. I, you know, running around in my underwear with a helmet on and trying to find my body armor at three o'clock in the morning because the contacts kicked off on the fob. And you're, you're running around like, it's almost like a, a circus sketch, you know, did, 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 running around trying to find your kit and, Tracer going everywhere and, you know, lads getting wounded and, and killed like every day. You know, it was it was pretty horrendous. But, um, you know, that's where I picked up my injuries, where my life changed for uh, forever. I was going to say for the worse then, but I don't really think it did change for the worse now I'm looking back on it. But um, it certainly changed uh, after a patrol on Christmas Eve. Do you want to talk about that a little bit or? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to. Yeah. Um, so we, we deployed, I hit the ground in Camp Bastion in Afghan on the 7th of September, 2007. Uh, did a couple of days uh, acclimatizing, uh, sorting out our kit, zeroing our weapons, all the usual stuff. And I think maybe on the 10th of September, me and some lads got thrown on a Chinook. We got flown out to Helmand uh, and we were working at a place called Ford Operating Base Robinson, which, if I remember rightly, at that time, it, it was south of uh, FOB Inkerman and all these other FOBs at the top, where if the enemy had attacked them and they tried, you know, legging it down the, the 611 and escaping, we were like that last cutoff. Into, they were building, I think, FOB Gibraltar at the time, which was slightly further south, but we were like that last cutoff. And from the minute I got into that FOB, um, it was kinetic, you know, firefights literally every other day, either out on a patrol or just in the fob defending it from enemy attacks. And after, what was it, three, three and a half months, uh, it was Christmas Eve, 2007, me and the lads went out on another foot patrol. And the funny thing about this patrol was, you know, all the other ones we'd done to that point, We'd go up, we'd get a brief, we'd have a mission, we'd push out two, three, four miles, six, seven, eight hours at a time. 
with a with a firm objective of what it was we were to achieve. But the idea of this patrol was because we hadn't left the FOB for like three days. It was just to show those guys that were constantly observing us that we were out there getting boots on the ground. Even if we weren't doing anything, we were trying to maintain the momentum, getting out there every day, showing them that we weren't sat in the FOB waiting for them. So the idea was literally leave the FOB in two sections from the, the rear gate, one go north, one go south. We were told patrol the immediate perimeter of the FOB, not pushing anyone in 300 meters out. Then meet at the front entrance of the camp. We were then to go back into camp. We were going to go back to the rear entrance of the gate, wait for about 45 minutes, and then whoever went north goes south, whoever went south goes north, get some fresh eyes on the ground, do exactly the same thing again, meet back at the front entrance of the camp, and then shut it down. You know, take a couple of days off, open your mail, enjoy Christmas, and, and all that kind of stuff. So really basic, no real objective, I guess. Um, just get boots out on the ground and maintain that momentum. So the time came, uh, we went out, I was second in command, the section went north, other guys went south. We spent about five hours, real slow patrol, methodical, you know, just really trying to do things in detail. Uh, got to the front entrance of the camp, went to do all our last minute bits and pieces and finish up. And my section were on high ground. Uh, we were on a piece of ground, what we called the North Fort, one of our target indicators. Slightly beneath us was Fob Robinson, so we could kind of see a semi-bird's eye view of the fob. And then quite a way beneath that, just off to the side of the, the main supply route, the 611, was that other section. So we got tasked with giving those guys overwatch while they peeled back into camp, they got behind the perimeter, they give us overwatch. We'd come off the high feature going, job done. So the guy in charge, a good friend of mine that I went through training with, uh, Corporal Sean Halesby, started giving his lads fire positions. I took the other half of the section and there was like a bowl in front of me because we're up on the, like this ridge line. There was nowhere we could really take cover behind. You know, it was before we were using trees and buildings, all the, the standard stuff. Um, so I thought if we get in this in this little bowl, because of the height we're at, if we get down on our bellies, no one's going to be able to see us from beneath. There, there was nothing above us, anything was beneath us, so no one's going to be able to see us. And the the best that the enemy could really do is randomly pop off a mortar or an RPG and just hope that they got anywhere near us. So it was, in my mind, it was the best form of cover that we could have got. So we jumped in, uh, the lads all started taking fire positions. I just stood back and observed for a little while, uh, just doing some checks, making sure we were tight and, and defensive. And then when they were happy and I was happy, I went over to the position that I'd picked for myself. And as I went to get on my stomach, uh, my right knee hit the deck. And that was the moment that I knelt on and detonated an improvised explosive device. Do you remember... Do you remember the after effects of that? So, I mean, obviously, you you know, you had um, three limbs taken off with that, didn't mm -hmm. you? Were you were you conscious after that? When you went after the explosion, did yeah. you? Yeah, you were still. I was conscious throughout it, um, and the only way I can describe it, and anyone who's listened to this who's ever been in some sort of 
traumatic accident, like a car crash, whatever, they'll understand where I'm coming from here. It's very surreal, you know. So this this device exploded. There's this huge dust cloud created from the from the sand and the ground. So you can't see anything. I thought we'd been attacked. You know, my fight and flight has kicked in. My adrenaline spiked. I'm waiting for this dust cloud to settle. Then, you know, thinking I can ID where the enemy is, start laying the rounds down. Hopefully all the lads will lay the rounds down and we can get out and no one's going to get hurt or killed. Um, so, you know, there's a million things going on in my mind. My brain's rattling around my head. I think we've been attacked. I, I knew from where we were that behind me, about 600 metres down where the other section were, there was a small forestry block. Everything else was just mud fields and, and flat. There was nowhere to take cover um, for quite some distance, especially within any sort of um, any sort of firing range from the enemy. So I thought, okay, these guys have attacked us. They've done it from the wood block. I'll turn around because it was behind me. I'll start laying down the rounds. We had obviously the HMG 100 meters away in camp. They they can hopefully get on and just saw this wood block in half. And while all this chaos is going on, you know, my adrenaline spiked, like I said, I can hear all the guys around me shouting, trying to figure out what's going on, can't see anything. I'm going, you know, in my mind, turn around, turn around, we've got to find where these guys are and get everyone out. I, even though I couldn't see, I knew that my body wasn't moving, you know, it wasn't doing what I was telling it to do and I, and I didn't know why. I was in no pain at all, so I had no inkling what had happened. And so I just waited. I thought, when this dust settles, I'll quickly see what's going on, make some calls on the ground and figure out what to do. And eventually it did settle. And I looked down to where my legs should have been and they just both of them had been completely ripped off uh, from the knee down. Now, when you look at that, this is what I mean. It's very surreal. You're looking at where your legs should be. Your brain is trying to comprehend what you're looking at. You're in no pain. So you're kind of saying, well, this can't be happening because this would really hurt. And then it's not hurting at all. Um, and it was very, it almost felt like a dream. You know, it didn't, it didn't feel like it was happening. And I very quickly, I'm not sure why, I just stopped looking at my legs and started looking around for the rest of the section, making sure that they were all right. And when I kind of looked over to my right-hand side, you know, that's when I saw my arm. My rifle was about 15 yards away. My body armor was gone. My right arm was just lying in the sand beside me, still attached to my body, but just from my bicep to my wrist, it was just dog meat, like ripped open. No, The bone had shattered completely. My hand was in pretty good nick. And for some reason, I just kind of reached down with my good hand, picked up my, my bad one, looked at it. Again, no pain, not really able to comprehend what was happening. And I just dropped it in the sand and was like, can I cuss on this? Yeah, yeah. I was like, fuck. And I just screamed, like, in frustration as I started to gradually realise what a stupid mistake I'd made. And you know what it's like, mate? You're like, when you're going through training in the court, you get it drummed into your head that you are better than everybody. In Not in an arrogant way, in a sort of build your confidence up, bit of a banter is short way you know like we have with the paris you know we're better than you are we're and to a degree i know everyone's different but you start to believe it and you think toe to toe we can take on anybody you know you want to firefight you're losing but then you know you start thinking about all these skills you've learned and and 
all this core history and all these these elite blokes that have gone before you, and you you start thinking, you know, I can do anything and I can be anyone in a fist fight, a firefight, and then you think, hang on, I've just stood on a lump of metal in the ground and had my ass kicked, you know, and you start to feel bizarrely in that moment pretty stupid and and filled with shame. It's it's so bizarre. People don't understand when I say this. I was lying there like, what a dick. What a dick. What an embarrassment. You know what I mean? You're the idiot that stood on an IED with all this training you've got and all these skills you've got and that's just beat you. You know? And then you start to feel guilty because you've got the rest of the section now that are in danger. And if the enemy pop over the hill with AKs, people might get wiped out and that's my fault. And now if that doesn't happen, these guys have got to somehow get to me because they're going to want to save me. And maybe one of them is going to set off another device and they're going to die because of what I've done. And it's it's so bizarre. You go through this range of emotions you wouldn't think. Anger, guilt, shame, you know, fear, obviously. That kicks in a bit later on when you're like, am I going to survive? Am I not going to survive? And, you know, the amount of blood and claret just pouring out of, of my damaged limbs was horrendous. Um, and although... When I was looking at it, I was like, there's no way I'm going to survive this. I always felt confident that I would because of the blokes I was with and I knew how good they were and I knew they would do whatever it takes to get me out. And, you know, they had their individual responsibilities should this happen. They knew the drill. They knew what to do. And they all did it perfectly. Like, unbelievably perfectly. You know, the amount of times you fuck it up when you're drilling it, and someone will drop the ball and, you know, you keep drilling, keep drilling, keep drilling. And it's rare you get it 100% right. When it actually happens, it's it's unreal to look at. Like, the way lads just go, doo, 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 and there's no messing. They just switch on and, it, and they just do it. And that's how I got out of there. You know, no one flapped, no one panicked, no one started freaking out. Everyone just went super professional, did their job, got in, got me out, and saved my life. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be said about, you know, what you're talking about there with people's, you're drilled in these situations over and over and over and over and over again. And you've been in the same situation, whereas I was like, fucking not this again. Mm -hmm. And um, there comes to a point where, you know, you're actually doing it for a reason, mm -hmm. you know, whether it's first aid, applying tool in the case or, or anything like that. Um and, you know, I've been in situations where, you know, guys have been shot or blown up or it's been kids been brought to brought to your compound that you got sought out. Um, I think that, like, we always talk about mindset, don't we, within the core, mm -hmm. you know, the commando ethos and the commando values and all that sort of thing. But underlying in that is also that indoctrination when you go through training and afterwards is... All that sort of thing is kind of just words where everything you've done previous to that and while going through that experience and those experiences, they they set the underlying foundation. So when the worst case scenario happens like mm -hmm. you did, uh, what happened to you, the guys can be like that, right, okay, yeah, Mark's on the floor, he's been hurt, but let's sort him out mm -hmm. and then deal with everything else afterwards. Yep. And, you know, hats off to the lads. I mean, you're here now, you sat, and you're very, very successful in what you're doing. Thank you. Um, but 
I think just going back to, to the lads that did sort you out, you know, hats off to them as well. They did everything right, like you said, and and uh, and you're really allowed to tell the story, which is absolutely amazing, I think. And if I remember rightly, obviously it was pretty hectic, there's a lot going on. The guy closest to me, whose job it was to mark the safe route, do the mine clearance drills for when the medic eventually got there, I think he'd only been out of training for eight or nine weeks. You know, so the first thing he sees is this lad that he's, you know, been friends with four or five weeks, just get torn to shreds in the middle of the desert, which, you know, you'd think that would, anyone would just freeze and be like, I can't do this, I can't do this. But he did it, you know, and hats off to him and, and everyone else, you know, even the lads that didn't necessarily have a job to do except for, you know, to um, form some more around defence, just lay there waiting for the, the medic. They did it and they weren't trying to, oh, what can I do? What can I do? They just, they knew, right, that's what you can do. You may not feel that you're doing much, but you are. And they just did it, you know? And it's, you know, I wouldn't be here yeah, had it not been for their level of professionalism. Yeah, and, you know, what we're talking about there with, um, with the training and stuff that goes behind it, we might think it's boring, it's monotonous, it's repetitive, mm -hmm. but it's there for a reason. Yep. It's there for a reason to, to get drilled into you so it is made... An automatic response if something does, if something does happen, but you could you could easily equate that to life in general. Mm -hmm. In life, there are things that are boring and monotonous, mm -hmm. but you know, coaching, for instance, I, I, I'll I'll, um, I'll use the example of search co uh, surfing coaching. Mm -hmm. So, surf coaching, like. The majority of the time you're teaching beginners how to catch a wave, stand up, show them the bits and bobs of the board. This is the deck, this is the bottom, these are the rails and all that sort of thing. And it's exciting to start with when you do the course because it's new. Mm -hmm. You've never done that before. You've never been put in that situation. Whether you've had a group of people in front of you or not before is by the by. Mm. But after you've been doing it for a while it becomes quite a repetitive, yeah. mundane thing to do. But the more that you do it, the better you get at it. And then the more things you can see and pick little technique tips up, which is kind of what my relation is to that, is mm -hmm. that you may have applied a tourniquet or practiced applying a tourniquet to someone a million times, mm -hmm. but it's ingrained into you and, you know, you're able to, you're able to, delve into that aren't mm. you and, and just do it automatically and then think about it later and I think that's a quite a key point to any sort of like horrific let's call it disaster or something like that is that you always react first mm -hmm. and then end up having to think about things later and that's when the emotions start building up yeah. and which definitely happened to me you know I, I, I got medevac back on Herrick 5 and it all caught up with me later on mm -hmm. um which which is why we've got quite a heavy thing with mental health now in the mm. forces, haven't we? But yeah. Um, yeah. So when you got uh when you got medevac, you you went through um the did you go through was it not where did you get medevac to? Well, I'll tell you what, I'll spin you another quick dip. Oh, before I, so once I was evacuated, I mean this is 
I've sat over the years now and just added up all these things in this chain of events and just realised how lucky I am. But after all of that, what happened, we're getting blown up. You know, I won't go into detail. I had to have my foot cradled on my stomach. I felt like the back of the vehicle was held in by my femur bone, by the driver and all this stuff. I get up to the back of the Chinook and I've got no pulse, no veins to put uh, intravenous lines in. And when they put an oxygen mask on me, it didn't steam up to show I was breathing. So, and you know, they prioritize casualties. They, they put me in a corner and they're like, he's dead. Because there was another lad who had shrapnel on his back. So they spent all their effort trying to save Stu, the other lad. When one of these medics on the back of a Chinook, right, walked past me. And you got to bear on, this thing's going left to right. It's full of sand and dust. And all the medics in the back are, are flapping and panicking. They've always the most, you know, horrendous casualty that they'd ever seen. And they're trying to save this other guy's life. He walks past me, this this medic, to get some equipment to go back and work on the other casualty. And he said that my eyes started to flutter, which meant that my heart was still beating. Mm. So although they said, you know, leave him, he's dead. He alerts the rest of the medics. They come running over to me. And, you know, I imagine they're all like, what do we do? What do we do? We can't get any fluids into him because his veins have all collapsed because of blood loss. So three days prior to this incident, whoever makes these calls in like the army medical field, uh, he had, or she had, I'm not sure if it was a man or woman, had cleared this new technique for use where if you can't get into somebody's veins to give them fluids, you drill into their tibia and their fibula with a, I think it's called an EZO drill, a medical drill. And then you put the intravenous lines into their bones. Problem is, I didn't have a tibia or a fibula because they've just been ripped off by this IED. So again, on this Chinook helicopter with no procedure, no standard operating procedure, dust and sand flying everywhere, potentially two dead bodies, everyone flapping trying to do their job, they decided that they were going to drill into my hip bone. No one had ever done it before. They'd ever, no one had ever even used the, the technique in the field before. It only been practiced in like a training environment. So they've gone from a training environment to a real life environment where they can't do what they've been trained to do because I've got no tibias or fibias. So they're going to have to cuff it and go in from my hip. So they drilled in through my hip. Uh, the first time they said that my skin wasn't taut enough and uh, for the, the the line to bite so they they pulled it they stretched it and they drilled in again and they said the second time this iv line they put in bit and it got into my hip and about three minutes later they said i was awake you know I, they literally put me back from the dead by cuffing a technique that they'd learned that had never been used in the field before it's crazy right it's um, insane it's, it's crazy and the bravery to do that and the courage that those medics had to just be like right we're going to try this we have to try this I don't know if it's going to work, and it did. You know, it's insane. The body is such an uh, amazing piece of mm-hmm. biology, yeah. almost. You know, the things that you can do to it or have have done to it, and to be on the cusp of being put in a corner saying, yeah, you know, he's, he's dead, mm-hmm. to let's put an IV into his bones. <laughs> And like three minutes later, yeah, responsive. They're, they're, at this, they're asking me questions. And rather than me going, I was answering what they were asking me. This is what they, I don't remember any of this. This is what they told me. I'd have been like, that. what have you fucking ditched me? Well, one, <laughs> one of them said that I was dripping because I'd spent like maybe 120 quid on some custom trainers from Nike ID, this, the, the Yank website. And I was complaining that I was never going to get to use them. And then I started complaining that my ass was hurting, which is apparently a, a side effect of 
big amounts of morphine that makes your ass hurt. I thought you were going to say, it's, <laughs> no, 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 it's, no. it's a case of spending lots of money, your ass <laughs> Spending lots of time with lads in the fob. Um, but yeah, and then they got me back to Camp Bastion. They took me to the field hospital and then the surgeons, you know, obviously, I was a mess, obviously. They just looked at, at my limbs and they, they do kind of a test, like where if you if you take your thumbnail and press it into your arm, you can watch the blood rush back into the part of your body where you've pressed. Yeah, capillary reflux. Is that what it is? Yeah. So they did that because a lot of the flesh that was still there was just dead. So they had to feel up as high as they could to where there was blood flow still. And then, because if, if you look at the photographs, you know, one of my legs is, I think, below the knee and one is through the knee, but all the flesh was dead. So they, they had to amputate both my legs above my knee and my right arm above my elbow. And then they patched me up and they got me back to the UK Christmas morning, Christmas day morning. Oh, mate. I know, Merry Christmas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. They're all wrapped up in the Christmas paper. Yeah, yeah. Happy Christmas to the Ormrods. But um, yeah, I, I don't remember any of that. The last thing I remember is that the Chinook landing and like the heat from the exhaust coming down on me. And then I woke up, I think on the 28th of December in, in Birmingham for like 15 seconds. I was kind of, I remember lying on my back. I could see like the blurry lights from the ceiling and I could hear every all these people around me. And I, I didn't wake up like some lads wake up and they freak out because they don't know where they are and what's going on. And I just remember very gradually being able to hear people. And every time someone said something once, it would echo three or four times. And I couldn't open my eyes. I remember lying there and I could, Obviously, you make out like the the light from the lights um, as I'm staring at the ceiling. So I knew I was lying down, and I couldn't open my eyes. Like the, the energy, I, I just was lying there in my head, saying, "Open your eyes," and I was trying to like send all my energy to my eyelids to try to open them so I could see what was happening, and I couldn't. It was like someone had put lead weights on them, and I started mumbling and. Uh, my now wife could see that I was trying to say something through this oxygen mask. So she took it off. Um, and that was the first time I came around. I actually proposed to her. That's when I proposed to my wife. Oh, really? In like a 15 second brief moment of consciousness in the ICU. And then I just fell back to sleep. I was so exhausted through, I guess, a combination of my body fighting off infection, all the drugs and pain relief that I was on. I just passed back out and was gone until the next day. Yeah, I remember um, the flight you must have been on. I um, I got took I got taken back to Kandahar, and it was quite surreal because I remember I I didn't really have horrific injuries, but it was enough that I couldn't hear or or see properly, and my my wrist was a bit fucked up. But long story short, I I got blown up in a in a Wimmick. Um and uh, it was my, it was the driver's, uh, the commander's wheel that went over an anti-tank mine. Okay. So I got, I got thrown out the vehicle. Um, everybody else was fine. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, I was a bit messed up. But I think it was more the blast. Mm -hmm. You know, have you seen the, um, the, the explosion from Beirut? Yes. So yeah. you know the shockwave that yeah. comes out of it. Yeah. There's a lot to be said about a shockwave and mm -hmm. how much it messes with your internal organs your balance Every, everything because right? it yeah. just shakes everything yeah. and um i remember being on being on the plane and it was really weird because we were at the we were at the front part of the fuselage 
and I was sat in a chair. But little did I know that later on, after I got hit by an IED, a load of the lads in the Vikings got hit as well, and some of them had some pretty mm -hmm. horrific injuries too. And they were all in the beds along the sides of the uh, fusel fuselage, and I... That's all I re really remember from that. I got taken back to Sally Oak in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. I knew yeah. that my mum and dad's house was only like 20 minutes away. Okay. So, um, yeah, I remember getting taken back to Sally Oak and I, I was like, leave me alone. Go and look after them. Yeah. Because, you know, they're, to me, they're more important. Right. Like, I, I was walking wounded, like, yeah. do you know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, and I remember getting to Sally Oak and, my uh, my girlfriend, my wife now, mm -hmm. um, she turned up with my dad, and that was me. Two hours later, I was back home. Really? Crazy, mate. Literally, <laughs> signed straight off, I was back home. And then, you know what we're talking about there when I... Um, so I, I'd spent six months tour with uh, with all the lads, and, you know, you, you, you make that bond with people. Mm -hmm. To get ripped out of that the last two weeks before I was supposed to come home. Mm -hmm. And then a day later, I was back in the UK, sat in a car, going back to my dad's house. I was then on Pottle, so I had another three months off, mm -hmm. along with my um, sick leave. And then I just remember coming back and everybody had gone. Everybody I'd spent all that time with had gone, they'd been mm. drafted, they weren't around anymore, and I was just like that. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Cause <sighs> what another, do you do? Another thing I never used to quite understand was when military blokes or veterans, you know, when they, they come back and they're violent and they drink a lot and all this lot, and they're like, you don't understand it, you know, and all this kind of... But then... And, and I, I I think years ago I started sliding down that route and I very quickly got a grip on myself and stopped it. But when you are literally one minute, you are you know, five, for five, five and a half, six months with all those people living in those conditions where you're constantly on high alert, right? And you constantly, every day, you never know whether your, your number's up and you're going to die and you have to see some horrendous things with your oppos or even... The, the people that lived in Afghanistan, the locals and the villagers, and then you come back and you're walking through the city centre and some chavvy little fuck in a tracksuit and a baseball cap is swaggering up the high street, gobbing off. And you look at them like, it's just, you. it's a completely different world. And you're like, this, this kid here walking up here thinking that he's a tough guy has no idea what some men and women do for jobs, for careers. That gave him that opportunity to swagger up the high street, causing trouble or whatever it is they do. And when I came back from Iraq, I didn't feel that way. Because when I came back, I was working the doors again. Um, and I I felt a lot more confident. Like People that would have intimidated me before I went really didn't rock my boat at all. But then when I came back from Afghanistan and you just see all these people... You know, just just like I described, like running around doing what they want, and you've come from this one environment where every day you don't know whether you're going to die or not. To come back to this quiet, very fortunate place that we live with all these freedoms, it, you just look at things very differently. I think. I think the first time, the first time I ever had really any experience of that, really, and I guess you could call it, call it an early sign of mental health. I don't know. Was when I came back from um, Jakarta. 
uh, I went to a um, I went to a club in Solihull, mm-hmm. um, in Birmingham, and I remember I think it was maybe three or four days after coming back, and I remember being surrounded by people and getting pushed and nudged and you know they don't know any different, and I just remember stood there going, I'm either going to get really angry mm-hmm. and explode in a minute, or I, I was just I'm not really an aggressive person anyway, I'm passive aggressive, mm-hmm. always have been. And I was just like, ah, do you know what? This isn't for me. Yeah, just remove and, and, and I just removed myself mm-hmm. from the situation. Mm-hmm. And like you're talking about there, when you know, with veterans and people that do come back from those situations, I think subconsciously you need to make a choice in your head of whether... You, it's going to sound bad, about whether you're going to let it affect you mm-hmm. or whether you are going to go, okay, there might be something going on here. What am I going to do about it? Right, yeah. And I think the easiest option, and I'm not saying this is why you know, some a lot of people go down this route, just take the easiest option and go, do you know what? I'm going to embrace that. I'm going to go drinking. Mm. I'm going to let it absorb me. And I think as soon as you let that creep in yeah. and it grabs you, it's like the big eye of Mordor, like the hand of, you know, the devil coming out and grabbing you and just pulling you slowly down and yeah. and, and pulling you down that route. And I think it takes a special, not a special type of person, but I think certain mentalities or people with personal personality traits mm-hmm. that, say, no, that's not going to happen to me, I'm going to do what you've done. Mm. Or what I would probably say, what I've done mentally in my head. I'm not going to let that affect me. I'm going to go and do something that is going to take my mind off that or what's going to give me focus to prevent that happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What it was for me, well, I was... So, I was born and bred here in Plymouth. You know, I lived there 37 years now. Hasler Company was formed in 2009 which was the the rehab it's now a choice service rehab place for um, people in the southwest and it was basically back when it started that was where you went when your career was over so a lot of lads from Afghanistan were going there you know you've been paralyzed if they had limbs missing maybe they developed epilepsy or something when they were when they were serving but if you went there that was your career over so we'd go out doing what boot next do you know go out for some scran and a few wets and you know there's crutches everywhere we were like 40 blokes strong down union street right like a zombie movie like walk around everywhere and i just started to notice and, and i i think i have a legit scientific reason why this happened now but i started to notice where i drink like a quarter of what i would drink before and i was blacking out and i couldn't remember things and i'm you know i'm talking about like three pints of premium strength log like a carlin or something and, and it was just affected me a lot differently and then one night i was in what is now pop world down union street unfortunately that's where i used to open the door so i knew all the security there and the lads had been out down the barbican drinking since about lunchtime and i didn't meet them until seven o'clock so i thought oh, this is easy they're going to be hanging out and i can just you know sip a few drinks and not be too bad and I don't remember anything from like 10 o'clock that night. And I woke up outside the nightclub. Two of my mates who were still bouncers there had, had grabbed me under the armpits and took me out the side door because I couldn't stand up. I was sat in a bus stop, slumped over. I woke up in this bus stop, no idea how I got there. 
one of my legs was 10 meters to my left the other one was to the right and my now wife was putting my prosthetic arm in the boot of her little Persia 106 while my dormer mates picked me up and put me in the boot and I don't remember how I got there so I woke up in the morning and you know I've got a, a real understanding wife because I ended up she took photos and she thought it was hilarious I was naked in the fetal position hugging a kebab on our in our um, entrance to our house and you know we, we got up in the next day and had a, a good laugh about it but then I started thinking I could have walked out into the street and got hit by a taxi or a bus I don't I don't know if I've insulted anybody or been aggressive to anybody and I, and I literally went that's it I'm done I'm not drinking anymore I mean I still have, I'm not a teetotal I, I never had a problem but I recognized I was starting to go that way and so I nipped it in the bud early and I was like, this is, I'm going to spiral if I keep doing this. So I was just like, sorry, lads, not going out tonight. Got got stuff on. And you know what? It's like you get a little bit of shit in the beginning, but you've just got to be like, look, big picture, it's not worth me doing it. You know, and, and I got it early. And uh, thankfully I did because, yeah, God knows what I was, you know, saying to people and, and doing. And, you know, the reality is I could have walked in front of a bus and died. You know, just from going out for a few beers. So sacked it and then took my life in a different direction. Well, been, that must have been quite a uh, quite a sight to behold. Because <laughs> yeah. if I'd have been driving down the street and I looked over and the, the, there's a guy that's a triple amputee, he's got a leg over there, a bit <laughs> over there, and I'd be like, what the yeah. fuck yeah. is going on here? I'm sure people did. I don't remember any, you know, I don't remember any of it, but I'm sure there were people walking around, driving past, and what's even worse, you know, these legs, all my prosthetics, all three together, is close to 100 grand. Some pissed up bloke could have ran off one of my legs and I'm screwed. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He's got no use for it, but I have. This is this is how I get around. They could have ran off on my leg and then I'd have been really in trouble. Yeah. You know, so the the pros don't outweigh the cons for me. So, you know, I, I found a more positive outlet. Well, you've got lots of things you know going on you've got lots of plates spinning haven't you and which mm. we'll talk about talk about in a bit so when you um when you recovered what was the first was was writing your book kind of one of the things that you you, you first you first did to, to to start getting the ball rolling to to come out of that because don't get me wrong and i don't know anyone that's done it but it could have been quite easy to be the guy that kind of played the sympathy card a, th a lot, but you didn't do that. You you were positive and mm -hmm. you became a positive role model, if I'm perfectly honest, for people, even now. Like, like I was telling you about the guy in the guard room, it was like that. Yeah, yeah. Like, the Mark Onrod's coming here. And that's like <laughs> that, that not bad. <laughs> this guy's like 80 years old. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's like, and he, you know, he knows who you are and, and what you stand for and that. And I think that just you know, goes to hold what people's perception of you as well, which I think is really positive. Do, do you know what that is, right? This is going to sound so chad and, and corny. But when I was in hospital, probably three weeks post-explosion, um, I, I knew how hard the recovery was going to be. And I was laying in my hospital, and I think the core was maybe, I'm going to get this wrong, 347 years old at that point maybe. It wasn't at the 350th, no way, because I was up and walking by then. And I remember laying in this hospital bed, and I was thinking, I don't know anybody that I've heard about, read about in that 347-year history that's ever let the side down. 
you know, our history is up there and it is prestigious. Um, you know, lads that wore a green lid or, or back in the day, the blue one did some incredible things. And I am not going to be the one that lets the side down. I'm not going to be the one who everyone, you know, in 300 more years go, oh yeah, Mark Holman was the guy that rapped because he lost a couple of digits. And I remember lying in bed like, I ain't doing it. And then this series of events started happening after that, which kind of fueled that, you know, my, my RSM when I was, back when I came back from Telec at Stonehouse was Baz Door. Mm-hmm. And I think I was getting charged. I got charged like three times in the, in the first five years of my career. And he somehow knew I didn't have a line in my beret. And he took it off and he pinned it to his board and he said, you better get back here after lunch with a new beret. So I had to run down, find a tailor's. So, and he visited me in hospital, right? Now, you've got to bear in mind, I was a young Sprog Marine three years into my career, and he was the RSM, right? So I'm, I'm nothing to this guy, right? And he could have charged me, took my lid, and then just forgot about me forever, right? He heard that I was in hospital. This is years later, came up to the hospital with a new lid for me and said, I remember taking your lid off you back when you came in and got charged. And, I, and that really affected me. I was like, how does this guy who is a legend in the court remember a little piss out like me and he did and I was like I'm definitely not letting the side down now because these are the kind of things that you know kind of this is your legacy do you know what I mean and the fact that he remembered that really got me and I was like this is awesome you know so I was like I'm not I'm not letting the side down you know I'm, I've got to dig out more than I've ever dug out in my life um and just kind of overcome this and maintain those standards that were drilled into me when I was at CTC you know it was high standards yeah. So um, when did you, so am I, am I right in saying that the book was the first first major thing you really did? You, you got that written and... Yeah, what, what, what that was, um, in rehab, in the evenings, you know, things, you, you do rehab from like half past eight to half past four. In the evenings, you would go into like what they call the day room, which is where the tellies were. And all the lads would be playing Xboxes and Playstations and I couldn't play them because I got one hand. So I'd just sit in my grot most of the time, you know, maybe do a bit of reading. Um, I think I only had a Facebook account back then because social media wasn't big. So I got quite bored. And because I was the first triple amputee from Afghan, I, I had a lot, of, a lot of media people around me all the time. And I had this one guy, Rob Kellaway, who was a freelancer with the News of the World back then. And we used to talk quite a lot and he would do a couple of stories on me. And he said to me one day, oh, we should write a book together just tongue-in-cheek joking and I had already I mean years before that thought to myself I wouldn't mind writing a book when I'm like 50 because at that point I'd been a bootneck I'd been to war I'd been a doorman I had all these dits I wanted to write down even if it never got published just write them down for myself I thought by the time I get to 50 I'm gonna have loads of dits and uh, I was like all right let's do it so in the evenings when all the guys were playing playstations and sat on the other he would interview me on the phone you know I'd spin dits to him he'd write it up he would then send me this book chapter by chapter. I would edit it so that it was more me than it was him. And then eventually after about 10 months, uh, we put it in a chronological order and it was good to go. Yeah. That's super cool. Yeah. Uh, and you know what? That's, it's, it's not one of the reasons why I started doing this podcast really was one, I was a little bit scared of my mental health state. So, you know more than anybody talking about your experiences mm-hmm. and stuff can um, can help alleviate that a little bit. Mm-hmm. But the other reason as well is that 
people's stories are amazing. Mm. You know, granted, you know, your your story, if people look into it, it, it is quite out there. But there are people that people that I know and, and people that my friends of friends know that have done some amazing things, whether it's the Falklands or, you know, just in day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. And they would never necessarily write a book mm-hmm. or they'd never tell anybody about it. And I just thought this would be a good opportunity to go get people's stories out there. They would never, ever get those get those stories told. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, I'm not. I'm never going to force somebody to do it. Mm-hmm. You're never going to hound them. I'll ask them once if they want to do it. They want to do it. If they don't, they don't. It's completely up to them. Yeah. But it's a good opportunity, I think, whether you put it through in this format, whether it's in the podcast format, audio format, or whether they write it down in the book. Um, I'm same as you. I, I, I always thought that I've got so many stories, contact stories. Mm-hmm going out of a night out stories, different individuals, their personalities, the quirks that they had and stuff. To put it all into a book would be absolutely amazing. But again, you know, you you had the opportunity where you had the guy from uh, from the newspaper that said, do you want to write a book? You know, and I tell you what's funny about it. I have never read that book. Oh, really? Until lockdown. So... It wasn't written in any sort of order. And by the time he put it in order, I was so fed up of telling these stories and reading that I just, I was like, right, whatever, just do it. And during lockdown, it's kind of like, I don't know if when you listen to this, you listen to your own voice, you're like, do I really sound like that? And it's a bit cringy. I'm quite yeah. conscious of listening to myself while yeah, I'm yeah. talking or to. Or when you see yourself on TV or whatever, yeah. you're like, oh my God. Well, that's what was holding me back from reading my own book. And then when I did read it, and this is not a criticism, um, I think this is how it has to be done to appeal to a civil and a military audience. The way some of it was written, I was reading it, I was like, oh my God, I would never say that. Like <laughs> These phrases like like chuffed up to the max, I kept seeing them, and I'm like, I've never said that in my life. That's horrendous. Um, but Rob had to write things like that to appeal to a civil audience. And, and I noticed that every time... Afghan was referred to, Robert read it as the Afghan. And I'm like, lads are going to smash me for that. Like, who calls Afghan the Afghan? But that's led on to me now editing the book. So I'm six chapters into editing it. I'm going to extend it. The chapter, I think it's 17 when I got blown up. The lads literally during lockdown sent me loads of these thoughts from Afghan that I've never seen before. So I'm going to put all of them in there and then I'm going to re-release it because I'm three quarters of the way through writing another book now which picks up where the first one left off. Okay. So that's the plan, is to re-release this first book, new front cover, all that kind of stuff, extend it, new pictures, never seen before, yada, 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 in line with the second book, because you can't read the second unless you've read the first. So we've not even said the title. It's Man Down, Man isn't Down. It? Man Down is the first book. Um, and we, we were going to call the second one Man Up, so that we, it was like a marketing thing. You know, you can't read Man Up without reading Man Down. But then we kind of, we went off that idea and we thought, I don't know what we're going to call it yet. I've got a rough idea, but uh, it's not man up uh, for sure. I thought you were going to say then, I hadn't even read my own book yet. And when I read it, I got to the end and I was like, this Mark Unmod book's a legend. (laughs) I thought he was going to die. Why is he he survived? Oh my God. What happens to him? (laughs) Well, yeah, I got to the end of my own book and I'm like, I can't wait to see what happens next. Uh, I I need to write it. (laughs) Yeah, but it, it was quite an eye-opener reading it. Um, 
it wasn't easy. It was uncomfortable because it's you're reading about not uncomfortable like you know you know I didn't want to relive it uncomfortable. It's just like cringy uncomfortable, you know. But I think as I'm getting older, I'm kind of getting over that now of the whole cringy thing. So, so on the on the on the tail end of the book, where did the Invictus situation come in? Because you were one of the first. You, you did the first Invictuses, that's right, yeah? Not, no, not the first one. No? Uh, I think it was the, the third and the, maybe the fourth and the fifth one, I think. Um, so you did all the other ones except the ones I just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty, so what it, what it was, right, it's, it's funny. Like I don't know if this is everyone, but it was certainly my experience that everyone that I started meeting after I was injured, in like the opening gambit of the conversation, they'd be like, so when are you going to do the Paralympics? And I'm like, is that like a prerequisite of being disabled? You have to be a Paralympian. <laughs> I was like, I have zero interest in the Paralympics. You know, before I was injured, I used to fight Muay Thai, full contact kickboxing, and I boxed in the Marines. They weren't team sports. They were, you know, martial arts. And, and I can't do that now. I don't want to do wheelchair racing or, you know, wheelchair, t- whatever the sports that were, they, they didn't appeal to me. But I was sat down in 2016 at Christmas. And every Christmas I'll sit down and I'll draft out my goals for the following year and, and start whittling them down and, and creating a plan around them. And I sat there and I thought, oh, in 2017, that's going to be 10 years since I was injured. So I want to do something different, something special, something that I haven't done to celebrate 10 years of life. So I sat down and I was in my office at home and I was thinking about it. And I'm like, okay, so you, you've done this, you've done that, you've done this, you've done that. And I was like going through the things I had done. And I was thinking, you know, what haven't you done? What can you do that's going to really mark this occasion? And then I was like, sport. I've not done any sport at all. I, you know, I still trained fizz in the gym, lifted weights, did a little bit of running and, and kept myself fit. But I didn't do anything specifically. And I'd seen. So, yeah, Invictus Games 1 in London. I think Invictus Games 2 in Florida. I'd seen a lot of lads went through rehab without there smashing it. So it must have been the third one in Canada. And I was like, do you know what? I'm going to go for that. You know, I, I no idea if I'm going to make the team. Probably not because I don't know any of these sports. I've never sat on a concept two rower in my life. I'd swam before, but not since being injured. I didn't own a hand bike at the time. I, I didn't do any of this stuff, but I was like, right, I'll have a go and see what I can do. So I applied for the team. I went through the process. You got to train, attend training camps and all that kind of stuff. And there, there's there's a lot more to it than just being fit and able and quote unquote talented at sport. They they look at you holistically before you make the team, like down to your attitude. Are you a team player? They check your social media. It's insane. Like the the criteria you've got to hit to make the team. I could, I, I could also imagine as well though they don't want somebody that. They're going to take somewhere and all of a sudden they're just going to implode. Exactly. You, you know, what's the point in having the fittest, most talented athlete on the planet who's a social hand grenade? Who's going to drop you in, in the doo-doo and, and, you know, misrepresent the country, the team, whatever it is. So they check. I think there was 11 different criteria you've got to meet to, to make the team. And uh, I was fortunate. I made it. Uh, the first year I did rowing, swimming and hand cycling uh, out in Canada. And uh, my, my goal, the thing they drummed into you all the time was everyone has their own individual idea of what success is, and it's not all about medals. And, and this is, you know, this is just me. Every time someone said that, I'm like, bollocks, it's about medals. 
because that was my individual vision of success. Some people who, you know, suffered with um, more mental trauma than physical just found it really difficult to even be in an environment where there's loads of people around clapping. So their idea of success was just to get on a rowing machine or in a pool and be able to function with all those people going on. You know what I mean? But my idea of success was gold medals. So I went out there and I trained hard. Like I was up every morning in my garage at like half past five. I'm on the bike doing cardio on the rower. Then I'd do a full day working because I've been working for the Royal Marines charity for 10 years now. Then I'd do strength and conditioning in the evenings. Then we had to travel all over the country on the weekends. And one day we'd be doing a rowing camp. Then we'd go somewhere else for a hand bike camp. Then we'd go somewhere else for a swimming camp. You know, all over the country, hundreds of miles. Uh, just trying to get the hours in and, and learn these sports. I didn't know the rules. I didn't know the etiquette. I didn't know the strategies, the techniques for any of it. Um, so just was like a sponge, sucking it all up. Got there. Didn't get any gold medals that year. Came home and I'd only ever wanted to do it once. Came home and I'm like... I can't let it lie. I can't, I can't, I can't wake up in 10 years and be like, shit, I still haven't got those gold medals. So I applied for the second time. Um, not really sure if I'd make the team again, you know, because you can't just go, oh, I did all right last year. So they're definitely going to pick me because there's 700 people applying for, I think it was 72 spots, you know, so it's, it's fierce competition, but I was lucky enough to make the team again. And I went out to uh, Australia the second year. And I got them. I got I got the four golds um, that I wanted. I think I got two bronzes and a silver that year as well. So I came home and I was like, right, I'm done now. Sport's done, as in competitive. I've, I've done what I wanted to do, ticked the box, celebrated my time, my 10 years, uh, on to the next thing. You know, and then that was it. That was, a, that was it. Game over for me there. How did the uh, how did the royal thing come up? Because your face was all over the place, wasn't it, with, uh, with Prince Harry? Yeah, I'm not really sure. I mean, we met a couple of times prior to that. Uh, he'd come down to HMS Drake at Hasler Company that I was talking about earlier, and he, he'd sat down with a couple of us and chatted. I'd been to events in London um, where he'd been there. Um, yeah, we just bumped into each other on a couple of occasions. And uh, obviously, being who he is and, and how the Invictus Games got started, we just met up again during Invictus, and someone, I guess, was in the right place at the right time, for me at least, with, with a camera, took some pictures, and yeah. There we are. Yeah, because there, there was, well, I, I don't know whether it's just built up in my head, but I can remember there was a little bit of like a media storm with that. I don't know whether it's just because it's the um, the, the circles that we mix in together anyway. Right. See, we don't see that. Well, I don't see it because no. cause you're in it. Yeah. And all I could do was finish, because I compete in so many sports, I literally would finish one, go back to my hotel room, and then start going over my mental preparation for the next one. So media any of that i would do it but i'd never see it on telly i'd never read it in the paper i'd never see the articles on social media because i was just too focused on the next race um but i i did hear that i heard that back here there was a, a lot of media around that kind of stuff yeah it was it was kind of it was kind of funny a little bit I mean, it used to make me chuckle a little bit like you know it's just like really random seeing bootlegs everywhere yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Really small bunch of blokes, six thousand within, you know, the UK military itself mm -hmm. and then there's always one that's like either in the media or mm. has done something great somewhere, or like, you know, it's, it's and again it, it's really it's really interesting when you look at what the calibre of person 
is that that's created out of eight months of mm-hmm. a little bit of hardship, you know? Yeah. It's just it's crazy, really, isn't it? Yeah. If you think and, about it. And in Invictus, again, it was the whole, you know, I'd sit there all the time and be like, right, you may not be in the coin anymore, but everyone knows you as the former Royal Marine, so you still do represent the Royal Marine. So yeah. you can't drop the ball. You can't, you know, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, not put the effort in. You've got to show the whole world what we're about, and that is digging out blind against the odds, no excuses, no matter what, get in there, cuff it, improvise, adapt, overcome, nail it, drop the mic, move on to the next thing. You know what I mean? No airs and graces, no big, you know, parties or anything, just boom, next thing, done. And that, that was the mentality that I carried into that as well. It was kind of, it kind of, when I look back on it, while I'm glad that I did it that way, it took away from the whole experience, like, at the end of both games, you'd finish like a Saturday night, you'd have a closing ceremony and you'd be on a coach at 10 o'clock the next day going to the airport. So other you know, other athletes that went, maybe you competed in one event and some of them were fortunate, they had it on the first day. Then they had like 10 days to go and see Australia or Canada and spend time with their family when I was just literally in my hotel room. Prep, compete, prep, compete, prep, compete, coach, airport, home. And I, both for both games, I just was so immersed in trying to win medals that... Um, I didn't. I did fully experience it, but I could have done a lot more. I think. I feel like that sometimes. I'm a little bit like that myself, where I'm very focused and goal orientated. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I, I did a podcast um, the other week uh, on Friday with uh, <sighs> with a big wave surfer called Andy Cotton. And my aim for that day was to go surfing in the morning, which I did. And then, t- then interview him. Mm-hmm. But I've got a lot of friends that live in that area as well. And then a lot of free time mm-hmm. in between. But I didn't go and see him. Okay. I went surfing. I set my computers, my microphones up, made sure it was all working. Yeah, it's still fucked up, like. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> my point being is that, you know, I was very focused on what I wanted to do. And then once I finished it, Packed up, showed him around, showed him a few vehicles and stuff, got in the car, drove home, put the kids to bed. Yeah. Boom. Didn't really like... You could have made a whole day of it, couldn't you? Yeah. Hanging out with them and, and visiting your friends. And Yeah. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I'm, I'm the same Like when I travel around and do talks, but it's because I'm so focused on doing a good job that I don't... It's just the way I work. I don't want to go and visit. If I'm in Manchester and I've got mates, I don't want to go and visit them three hours before I'm going on stage because I need to get my head in the game. Yeah. You know what I mean, I've, I've learned over the years that what I'll do is I'll go up there, do what I've got to do, and then maybe book in the next day rather than just rush back home, book in the next day, hang out, catch up with friends, and then go and in, enjoy the experience more. But when you've got a family as well, it, it's not that easy, is it? Because you want to get back, you know, put the kids in bed and see them and help them with the homework, whatever you've got to do. Um, but yeah, I, I got massive respect for people that can just like rock around and, and enjoy the whole experience and then, at, you know, a drop of a hat, stand on stage and talk, set up a podcast and record without getting their head in the game first. They can just flow it all out, like, you, you know, your Joe Rogans and those kind of people. Um, I'm just not there yet. <laughs> I don't think any of us are. You've got to be in that game for like 20 or 30 years to, yeah. to realize the, uh, the professionalism, the. And and it is all like, it's like learning rifle lesson one. 
god. Yeah, let's equate it to some something military. Rifle lesson one, all the way to when you do your weapons handling test. You know that weapon inside and out. Mm-hmm. But it takes you a long time mm. to develop that and to do something like this, like a podcast or be a public speaker or, I, I don't know, be a TV personality, let's say, for instance. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot, to, a lot of time in developing your own personal traits, but also... Um, you to be in that environment too to be good at it mm-hmm. which is why when people listen to this they're like that shut up mate <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think they are yeah no it's um and again it's the i think it's a military thing you know with seven p's isn't it prior preparation and planning um you kind of feel you, you have to you know you have to do it um and put that effort in that prep and that planning to do the best job you can do Let's talk a bit about jiu-jitsu because I know you, you got into that, what, a couple of years ago now? A couple it's of years? Be, it's Just, got to be close to three years is now. It? it must be, yeah. yeah. So what got you into that? Sam Sheriff got me into that. Um, so I mentioned earlier, you know, I used to fight competitively in, in Muay Thai, full contact kickboxing, I boxed in the court. So that was, that was my background when it came to sports and martial arts. And after I got injured, I had some people approach me um, people I've never met before who were black belts and whatever discipline and say, you know, come and train this discipline, that discipline, we can get you to black belt. And I, and I knew that without legs, even not without knowing in great detail about what those disciplines involved, I knew I couldn't do them because I can't kick. You know, I can't do the, the kata and like karate and stuff like that. So it felt more like I wouldn't, I would have been getting different color belts through sympathy rather than through effort. Yeah. And so I just politely turned these people down over the years. I'm like, you know, I'm too busy, but thank you very much. And then I was in the sergeant's mess at Stonehouse one day and I met Sam Sheriff, who is um, color sergeant in the Royal Marines, PTI. He is the, I could probably get this wrong, the head of Royal Marines close combat or an armed combat, I think. And he was at the time a purple belt in jujitsu. And he said, look, come down to the dojo, which was a converted squash court, and we can do some jiu-jitsu. Now, when I was growing up, I did jiu-jitsu, but it was Japanese traditional jiu-jitsu. And, and I remember when he was, I was speaking to him, thinking back to them with all the jumping, the rolling, the break falling, and I thought, here we go again. I've got another bloke who wants to get me in there. You know, we're going to take some pictures, put them online, and everyone's going to be like, oh, well done, mate, good, good try type thing, feeling sorry for me. I didn't have a clue what, Brazilian jiu-jitsu actually was. And so I went down there with him and we started rolling, just me and him, for this first day. And I'm just kind of waiting for the him to say, all right, we've got to do a roll and a break for the stuff I, I knew. And it never came. We started doing this ground fighting. And I'm like, this is brilliant because I can actually do this. And I was hanging out that, that first day. And, you know, my, my head was, all that rolling around, I wasn't used to it. My, I was dizzy and I felt like I was going to throw up. But I was ball bagged by the end of it. And that, for me, was a, a feeling. I'd got it from the Invictus and everything before, but it wasn't something that I could get very easily anymore because I couldn't re- rarely get my heart rate to that kind of level, especially without any specialist equipment to feel like I've really thrashed myself. And I got to the end of it, and I'm like, this is awesome. And so I started going back. And then I started realizing that actually I had an advantage. Because as I was learning things, like when someone had me in their guard, 
I could just wiggle my bum and pop out of it. Whereas other people who have got legs that, you know, they get their hooks in, they're, they're stuck. And I'm like, this is actually an advantage for me. And people have got less to grab of me. And so I started developing my own way of doing it, which was another thing that I loved was that it wasn't like, this is how you must do this. You must take the left hand with the left hand, grip the wrist with the right. And I'm like, you can just do what you want. You adapt everything to suit you and, and what you're good at. And so I just thought, actually, I can progress through this sport based on hard work and mat time, not people feeling sorry for me. You know, I'm just going, oh, we're going to give this guy another belt because he's put a little bit of effort in. And um, yeah, I think that was about three years ago now. I, I got my blue belt last year. I haven't trained at all this year because of COVID, um, which is killing me. But not COVID, I mean, not training is killing me. Um, <laughs> and I can't wait to get back on it and, and pick up where I left off. I think the break's actually going to do me good. I think there's a lot of people out there worried of, of skill fade and stuff like that. And I'm sure there will be for one or two sessions. But I think that that headspace away from the mat and watching stuff online, reading books, um, you know, following really high ranking people's social media and that kind of stuff is, is going to be a real advantage. So I'm just looking forward to, to when we get the green light and we can go back and start training again and, and seeing where I'm at. Yeah, I try, I try over the COVID period, I tried to not, I haven't purposely stayed away from it, but I got very um, immersed into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I try to stay away from watching technique videos and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that because I just know from my, my own coaches that you know, you you could learn some Gucci little roll or whatever from watching the video, but unless you've got your fundamentals and your basics mm-hmm. down and nails, which they're never going to be, mm-hmm. um, there's no point in even trying to trying to do that. Or you can be really good at the um, the visual. Let's call it visual jizz stuff. Right, right. Yeah, so the stuff that looks good. Yeah, yeah. But when you get someone that's got good foundational groundwork where, you know, they're just using, you know, good at basic guard, good at retaining side control, good at retaining mount, it's not rushing things, Mm -hmm. making sure that all their blocks and stuff are in before they move, all that is in place. It it just shuts everything, everybody out, Mm -hmm. everybody else out that has got all these Gucci little you know, diving around in circles, barren bowlers and worm guards and all that sort of stuff that's popular. Um, Yeah, I just, I I just tried to, I'm not stayed away from it on purpose, which I think is going to be good because when I do get back to training again, maybe two, three weeks time, um, I'll get back into it a lot more, Mm -hmm. you know? I Um, think with with jujitsu for someone in my situation, uh, one of the videos I watched over lockdown was about the concepts of jiu-jitsu, you know, like balance and, where, uh, you know, how to sweep someone, this, that, yeah, but not so much techniques because a lot of the techniques that I watch, well, all of the techniques I watch are from able-bodied people. And yeah, I could sit there and study it and try and figure my way to do it and drill it, but I just think it's a lot more effective if I learn the concepts and the ideas behind certain things when I find myself in a situation and I can look and go, like, oh, his arm's there, and, and then he's flat, and, you know, uh, that to me is, is a better way to learn. So I'm never going to be this guy who can jump and get someone in a triangle and, and do all these fancy things. What I want to do is focus on the basics, you know, keeping that pressure right, advancing my position, you know, slowly, methodically, you know, looking 
for the subs, but you know, not overlooking for them that kind of stuff. So um, I think that's the, I think that's the draw with jujitsu as well. Is there is like you were just saying previously, there is no right or wrong no. way of doing something. There are different ways of doing something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all down to your adaptability. What yeah. what works for you is not necessarily going to work for somebody else. Right. Um, and you know the way that you put your weight somewhere to pin somebody down is not necessarily going to be the right way that somebody else is going to do it because everybody's body types are different. Yeah. You know, and and I think that's the good thing about it. And it's one of the things that drew me to it more so when I first started doing it was. There are so many different ways of doing something really simple mm-hmm. and so much of adaptability in it. And I think if you have that mindset where, you know, you're, you're an adaptable person as well, I, fits in, I think it fits in really nicely. Mm. But don't get me wrong, I've not done karate or, or any. I did a little bit of taekwondo when I was younger. I've just known from what people are telling me, like set katas where you've got set movements to achieve this, this and this. Whereas... There isn't that, mm. um, you know, and we've rolled together a few times mm. before and being able to adapt to what other people's reactions are as well mm-hmm. is an, is another good thing with it as well. Yeah. Because you're putting yourself in those those really weird situations, aren't you? Yeah, and I, I just found as well as, a, as an amputee, um, you know, missing multiple limbs, that some of the stuff I learned on the mat really crossed over into my life. Like, I don't have my prosthetic on right now. Um, a lot of the time I have a prosthetic on, but when I don't, I just really wouldn't use what's left of my right arm. But then when I started using it in jiu-jitsu for certain things, like, you know, I'd drive this into someone, staring them or use it to choke someone. Then I found that when I'm walking around in everyday life, a situation that before would have been more difficult, I'm like, just use your stump. And, and then I could have do more in my everyday life thanks to the lessons that I learned from jujitsu, you know, and that's that's another thing that I loved about it that that crossover from on the mat to off the mat. Yeah, and I think what what Sam's done uh, with reorg, it's taken me a long time to grasp it. Mm-hmm. That's a different conversation to have altogether. But you know, getting that word out to people that are having issues, which is what I started talking about earlier on in this mm-hmm. podcast, where if you've got a focal point with something. Instead of using drink or going down, you know, the dark road, mm-hmm. if you have got some form of mental health, jujitsu is an amazing way to yep. focus. Yep. It's to focus your energy on something else. Because once you start getting into it, and like surfing, if you get the bug for it mm-hmm. and you start enjoying it, in your vacant space or your blank space time where you've got you're not at work or the kids aren't screaming down your ears. Yeah. You're thinking about it. Yep. You're going, what did that guy tell me about different angles of putting a triangle or a loop choke? Mm-hmm. And you have a little look at it on YouTube or you've got your little click where, you know, you, you've got your academy or your sports group or jiu-jitsu group that you go to and you're sending texts to each other yep. and then you're sending videos to each other and then yep. before you know it, it's two o'clock in the morning and you're like that, fuck, I've got to get up to work in four hours. <laughs> yeah, but you're right, you're filling that that void where you'd normally be thinking negative things with something a lot more positive and a lot more constructive. And as well, you know, I, I believe that as human beings, 
we're we're at our best when we feel that we're growing and moving forward and learning things. And when you, when you sit there and you, you dwell on the negative thoughts and negative things in your life, you're not moving things forward, you just spiral. You, then you start to get angry about the fact you're doing that. Whereas if you've got something like jujitsu, you are constantly learning. You know, I spoke to Sam when he got his black belt last year. And a couple of people have said this to me who are, who are black belts have said it, it's not, it doesn't, you'd expect to feel like you'd come to like the end of the journey. He's like, no, it feels like I've started from scratch again as a white belt, but with 10 years experience. So you never stop learning. That that potentially empty space is constantly filled with just learning and you know trying to push yourself forward and become better. And I think what you're saying there about the learning thing is that the brain wants to adapt all the time. Mm-hmm. So ha- having having something that you can constantly learn with and something that you enjoy and is physical and is going to keep you fit, you know, when people start doing it, mm. you know, that that's that's what gets people addicted to it. Yeah. And they've just started soaring outside. They're cutting the grass out there, aren't they? Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what what are you uh, what are you doing at the moment? Have you got anything? Have you got anything on? What's your focal point at the moment? So. I mean, I touched on it earlier. I've been working for the Royal Marines charity now for the last 10 years. So I'm a day off today, but um, I work for them full time, Monday to Friday, uh, trying to raise money, bit of marketing, pushing the word out about the great work that they do. I've got this second book to finish. I have, um, yeah, I can say that. Um, I've signed during lockdown some movie contracts. Oh, cool. So we're turning Man Down into a film now. Um, obviously can't do anything because of lockdown but the, the team are working hard behind the scenes right now to get everything in place ready for when we can start filming and then just whatever comes really you know things like this doing doing podcasts I've got my own podcast the work podcast you know the social media takes up a lot of my time but just running with whatever opportunities are out there and making the most of them yeah and I and I think that's where, would you call yourself an entrepreneur? You kind of are, right? Because you, you, you're, you're, making, you're making business as you go along, aren't you? You know, you're, you're adapting, you're, mm. you're creating something. Yeah, I'd put it under that bracket. It feels like there's 20 different things that I could say, but entrepreneur kind of encompasses them all because they are, you know, books, films, you know, I've got small businesses online and that kind of stuff. It's all different things that, um, you know, come under that umbrella, I guess, of entrepreneur. Cool. What are are the uh, podcasts you're running at the moment called? So I've got mine, which is the No Limits podcast, which I've uh, really badly neglected recently uh, because of other things I've going on. The work one is called the Charlie Charlie One podcast. That's more focused around the Royal Marines charity, um, volunteers, supporters, staff, and, and everyone that helps us with that. Uh, and and my one is more about, uh, like we said earlier, interviewing people with interesting stories, you know, and, and getting those stories out. I've met some phenomenal people. You know, someone you might actually want to contact and speak to is, is a lady called Helen Barnett, who, back in the the late eighties, early nineties, was a, a police officer. She was the the second female, but the first mother to serve with, I hope I don't get this wrong, SO19. Right. She's been stabbed 
shot and blown up by the IRA back when mental health support was non-existent. It was the old, you know, brush yourself on, get back into work Monday and crack on routine. She is phenomenal, mate. And she is now just on the up and up um, on the speaking circuit. And I think she's writing a book and everything as well, but she's awesome. She, she, I, I told her, I think I said it on the podcast and I tell her all the time, she is the kind of woman that I believe should be on the TV a lot more for young girls to look up to. Do you know what I mean? Someone who's a positive role model, a strong woman who's achieved a lot in her life. You know, she's she's brilliant. Yeah, cool, nice. And uh, you mentioned you mentioned the film. Is that just sort of like in the in the pipeline? Yeah, I suppose you're not really wanting to talk about too much about it, right? Uh, well, I've got what day is it today? Wednesday. Wednesday. I've got a, a, a TV interview about it tomorrow. Ah, um, uh, this this will be out in about a week's time. Oh, so okay. yeah, I mean, you got. There's not much to talk about. Like, I got approached and asked about doing it. Um, did some due diligence. Um, jumped on board with it. Signed the contracts in lockdown. The the producers and, and the other team and that behind the scenes have been doing all the stuff that I have no idea about. Um, you know, raising finance, speaking to people in the industry, that kind of stuff. Feeling out lead actors and everything. And uh, I can't really do anything until lockdown's lifted and we can we can start filming but i'm looking forward to it because i'm a bit of a film nerd myself you know I've, i grew up loving you know movies action movies all, well, all kinds of movies is it gonna be like commando with arnold schwarzenegger yeah everyone's just gonna be shooting me at point like raising the face and i'm just gonna be running towards it with a knife in my teeth okay kill killed about a thousand people yeah just rowing around the river tamar in my speedos yeah. <laughs> covered in cam cream with a jenner accent <laughs> and an either dooney pasty yeah uh, no, it's, it's going to be exciting. Um, I have a, a vision in my head of how I want to turn out. I'm quite lucky. I'm actually a, a, an assistant producer on it as well, so I get a little bit of say in how things pan out. But I know the kind of thing that I want. Um, and m- my aim is to have... I want people crying when they come out of the cinema at the end of it um, for various different reasons. Um so yeah, it's going to be a lot of work, but I'm excited and the team are motivated. So we're looking forward to getting started. Just It's just frustrating at the minute having to sit and wait. Mate, sounds super, super cool. And I'm actually looking forward to it now after you said that. So um, Mark Conrad, thanks for your time. And uh, thanks for coming on the Grumpy Surfer podcast. Mate, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, mate. Yeah, cheers, buddy. And that's it. If you enjoy the podcast, please comment, like, share and subscribe on your podcast providers. Thanks for listening.